This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show, and salut Babette. The team tonight is Andy Britt, Kurt Johnson, Rima Rattan, James Whitmore, and my name is Vivian Langford. We would like to pay our respects to the elders, past and present, of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting, and also to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation in Sydney, where we will be broadcasting from Radio Skid Row. This is episode two of our series, From the Front Lines of the Climate Crisis. I was delighted when 3CR journalists, Rima, Rattan and James Whitmore, agreed to hunt down some stories from the front lines of climate change. And they make a guest appearance on our show. Kurt Johnson, whose regular show you will hear next week, gave a super interview to me from the Pacific. Like you, I was astounded by the news from Siberia recently of very high temperatures. Oil spills due to the permafrost melting under tanks and wildfires in the forests. James talks to a Russian environmental journalist called Angelina Davidova in St. Petersburg and you will be surprised how similar Russians are to Australians with fossil fuel experts front of mind and a melting pole at their back. Because Russia's economy is pretty much based and built around production and exports of fossil fuels, minerals and metals. And Russian economic analysts are looking at what other countries are doing. What about demand? What about carbon taxes? What's going to happen with the decarbonized economy? Then Rima told me how we shouldn't forget how Australia is on the climate crisis front line. And she spoke to Bradley Mogridge about Indigenous water management. There aren't a lot of Indigenous people in this field, as Bradley says. My network grew from one of me to three a couple of years ago. So, you know, there's three of us that identify as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander and we, um, you know, we have qualifications in, in hydrogeology. Bradley Mogridge takes us to the underground waters beneath the Beetaloo gas fields that must stay forever unexploited. He tells us how ancient law is to never mess with the springs and how we must protect and value our groundwater. And then Kurt came up with how the 41 nations in the Pacific are seeing the climate crisis as a threat to their sovereignty. His interview with Dr Wesley Morgan reveals just how angry and upset they are with Australia's lack of a plan to stop exporting emissions. The Tongan Prime Minister... Uh, broke down in tears. You know, they, they, they tried to have a human discussion with Scott Morrison. They tried to engage him and explain just how important they felt it was that Australia commits to doing more on climate change. People were angry about that. Category 5 storms are wiping them out. And as Frank Bainimarama says, we're all in the same canoe. It's leaking water, but you can't fix a leaky boat with Kyoto credits. The lessons from the climate front lines may be too hard for mainstream journalists to tell. 
These lessons are too critical of our own performance as Australians and they are too hard for our government to hear. But that's the beauty of community radio. We are free to follow a story even when the message is painful. To me, what comes through is we must listen to our neighbours in the Pacific, we must promote Indigenous experts who have an ancient relationship with the land, and we must pay attention to global signals such as the Siberian permafrost melt before it's too late. First, here's James. In mid-June, meteorologists and climate scientists noticed something odd happening in the Russian Arctic. On the 20th of June, a weather station in eastern Siberia recorded a new record for the Arctic Circle, 38 degrees Celsius. While Siberia does get surprisingly hot in summer, the record is a troubling reminder of the rapid changes occurring in the Arctic due to climate change. The Arctic is one of the fastest warming regions of the planet. In May this year, temperatures were 10 degrees above average in Siberia. To put that in context, January 2020 in Australia, the third hottest January so far recorded, was only 1.5 degrees above average. Wildfires have been burning in Siberia since May. The Arctic sea ice could reach its second lowest level on record, and permafrost is melting. To find out more about what is happening in Russia, and what Russian people think about climate change, I spoke to Angelina Davidova, an environmental journalist based in St. Petersburg. My name's James Whitmore, and you're listening to Beyond Zero on 3CR. All right, Angelina. So can you tell us what's been happening in the Arctic over the past months? Right. The Arctic has been all over the news in Russia, uh, mainly due to a number of um, reasons. One of the reasons is the warm Arctic and how high the temperatures are. In some parts of the Russian Arctic, it has been as hot as 30 degrees centigrade, which is very rare for the region. So it has been very warm. Uh, News number two is that uh, this warming is leading to permafrost melting. And there are more and more studies coming out which say how dangerous will it be and how all these processes are already happening and taking place now. And news number three has been a large spill of oil products from a metal company called Norilsk Nickel. Uh, this is the company which produces uh, nickel and uh, a number of other rare metals, also for global consumers. And uh, they had a storage of oil products like for their own use. And uh, then this storage cracked and there was a massive leak of oil product into the earth, into the rivers, and uh, it's really one of the largest um, spill of oil products in the history of the Russian Arctic. And that's linked to this permafrost melting, is that correct? Right. It's like one of the reasons, well, the company says uh, what, the main reason for that leakage is permafrost melting. So the base of the oil product storage has cracked because the earth became soft. Uh, but then in many environmentalists are also saying that the company is willing to put all the blame into climate change 
and not take personal responsibility for not checking um, the condition the storage was in. So I believe it's a combination of factors. And I've also seen that this week there have been fires in Siberia. Right. The fires have been uh, there since May. And uh, we all remember last year's fires in Russia and also in Australia. And uh, this year, the fire season in, uh, in the eastern part of Russia has already started, uh, started in May. And now the fires are becoming larger and larger. So far, they're mostly taking place in the areas which are not close to human settlements. This is why you don't get it in the news. Also in the news in Russia, they regularly give statistics about how many fires are out there. But unless it really concerns people, unfortunately, it usually doesn't make into like front page stories. And what are scientists saying about why uh, Russia is seeing um, this ex extreme heat recently, the fires, the permafrost melting? Well, those are obvious consequences of climate change. Um, it's not only about Russia, it's about you know, Earth as such and our planet as such. It's just negative consequences of climate change. They have uh, various impacts over various countries and regions and continents. And uh, Russia being a northern country and also a country very close to the Arctic and which uh, has um, a, you know, the, most, the largest part of the Arctic, obviously sees consequences which are more typical for Arctic areas and northern areas. And uh, which means uh, one of the negative consequences is the melting permafrost because it becomes warmer. It becomes much warmer in summers and also the winters are also becoming warmer. So this is one of the reasons. And um, as to the wildfires, well, it mostly concerns uh, boreal forests like taiga forests located in the Siberian part of the country that is east uh, and southeast of Russia, so like Siberia and the far east of Russia. This is where, uh, once again, the winters are becoming milder. There's less snow. And uh, in case of Russia and in case of water supply, snow is the so-called slow water. It means snow keeps water for long, and then it gradually releases water when it's needed. But if we have less snow, we also have less water for the forests and for the water systems all the year around, which means um, it's getting drier over there. And uh, there are more wildfires originating just out of natural reasons. And how are these events being talked about in, among Russian people? Is the link being made with climate change? Well, uh, gradually, yes. I would say I've been someone who's been covering the topic for the last 10 years. And I remember that say 10 years ago, that was a completely unimportant topic. No one was really interested in it. People were making jokes about climate change, like how climate change is good for Russia. Like we won't, it will become warmer. We're tired of living in the cold and all this. But now seeing all the negative consequences of climate change, uh, including wildfires, and including melting permafrost and its impacts on infrastructure, even though there's not much infrastructure in those areas, but still, um, people gradually start thinking about climate change as a dangerous factor. So nowadays, if you ask people like in the street about main environmental challenges, 
they would probably say that waste and recycling is number one. Uh, air pollution and air quality is number two. Uh, green areas, especially urban green areas, is number three. But then they would probably still name climate change as number, I don't know, seven or number eight. Now I have a feeling like people acknowledge that, that it's here and that it's not only beneficial for Russia. So the awareness and the acknowledgement of the climate change and its risks uh, is here. What's been the Russian government's approach to climate change um, and particularly in reducing emissions? Here, likewise, as with the public, uh, a few years ago, that has been a very marginal topic. And uh, also the politicians were making jokes about how Russia is uh, benefiting from climate change. We don't need to do anything. And we have so many forests, so we will uh, fulfill our climate targets and we will also help the whole world with our forests. But that uh, kind of approach uh, began changing at around 2009. That was the climate, the Copen Copenhagen, COP15, the United Nations Conference. And um, that was when uh, Russia's president at the time, Dmitry Medvedev, came for the first time to the UN Climate Conference. And he announced that, yeah, we're with the rest of the world who acknowledge there is a problem and we're going to be doing something about it. And then uh, Russia's climate doctrine, which is like a baseline document for all climate legislation Russia has been adopted. And then later uh, we saw some further legislation passed along. Last year, Russia uh, joined the Paris Agreement. Uh, there's also um, has been a draft uh, of the low carbon long-term development strategy presented this March. Uh, also, a country, the climate change adaptation plan has been adopted in January this year. And also legislation on carbon reporting and carbon monitoring and uh, a possible discussion on the introduction of a carbon price in Russia has been studied by the Minister of Economics. So um, the topic is now being taken more seriously. And uh, most uh, like scientists and politicians, they all say that climate change is here. It's important. Russia is taking part in all international agreements which are out there and we treat it seriously. But this is all in wording. If we look up at the figures and at particular climate reduction uh, targets, we see that they are highly ambitious. So at the moment, Russia is around 30% below its greenhouse emissions in 1990. That happened for Russia and also for a number of other Eastern European countries because of the economic downturn, because of the economic fall of the 90s, which means we've overfulfilled our Kyoto targets without doing much. Uh, but then our... Um, contribute our NDC, our like plan for the Paris Agreement, uh, at the moment is something between minus 30 and minus 33 from, from the 1990 levels, which means we've already achieved it, or maybe, you know, it will be just a couple further percent, which is like not very much. And um, also our draft for the low carbon long-term development strategy um, it, uh, it doesn't say that we will aim for the uh, zero emission target by 2050. 
It might happen under one of the scenarios in late 21st century, but not anytime soon. So in a way, the problem is being recognized, but there's not much being done in that respect. And also the climate policy is rather inambitious. Yes, Australia is wrestling with some of the same problems. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you've been at the forefront of environmental journalism in Russia. How have you seen reporting on climate change and the environment change over the past decade? Well, I have a feeling there's been a surge in environmental reporting over the last few years. Like environmental topics are high in political agenda, social agenda, everyday life agenda. People are willing to read about it, to write about it. There's a huge demand for environmental information. But when I say environmental, like people are mostly interested in local environmental issues. And those are like for urban issue cities that would be waste and recycling, air quality, green areas, trees, water, wildfires, if they live in that region. So those would be it. Um, bringing in climate reporting to Russia was not an easy task because in many ways it seems too abstract. It also didn't seem relevant for many people. Like how does it concern my life when, you know, a tree in a park does concern my life? You know, what I smell in the air does concern my life. But then, uh, and also uh, landfills do concern my life. But how do I see climate change happening? And, um, but I believe, well, at first that um, uh, now seeing more negative consequences of climate change, people also started paying more attention to it. And there are also more articles about climate change, like negative aspects of climate change. Another very important topic for Russia with regard to climate change is um, the fact that many other countries who are buying Russia's oil, coal, and gas are going to uh, enter a decarbonization path, meaning they will probably be buying less of it. And uh, some of the countries, like the European Union, is even in, in its Green Deal, is even talking about introduction of the carbon water adjustment mechanism which is a kind of a border tax on all goods and services and everything which is produced outside of the EU and then being imported into the EU. And uh, so the producers will have to pay an extra amount of money if it's produced in a place which doesn't have any price on carbon. Uh, so this is something which concerns Russia and this is something which concerns Russian business a lot and they are becoming increasingly worried about it and um, about these two factors, because Russia's economy is pretty much based and built around production and exports of fossil fuels, minerals, and metals. And uh, this is why all these questions are very important for Russia. And this is why Russian businesses and Russian economic analysts are looking at what other countries are doing. What about demand? What about carbon taxes? What's gonna happen with the, with the decarbonized economy? Again, very similar to the questions that Australia is talking about. Um, oh. Finally, Angelina, I just wanted to ask you, how did you become interested in climate change and become an environmental journalist? <laughs> wow, it's a long story, but I'll try to put it short. So um, I went into journalism in 1999 and I worked for five years being an um, economic correspondent and run, uh, writing about economy and business for um, local um, economic newspaper. 
And then I did a number of international uh, journalistic projects, also like in Oxford, by the, supported by the Reuters Foundation and also in other countries. And I felt like maybe I want to try something else in my life. So I started uh, doing and managing projects for international nonprofits, for international NGOs, including cooperation between countries in various areas. And this is how one of the projects which came to me was a very interesting one. It was a sail ship which was supposed to go from Germany to Russia along the southern coast of the Baltic Sea. And in every uh, large city where it stopped, uh, there would be a festival which would join culture and environmental problems. Like how do we show uh, an issue of Baltic Sea pollution through movies or through photography? or through dance or something. And I was the one responsible for the environmental component in St. Petersburg. And this is how I became interested in the topic. This is how I thought, wow, maybe environmental problems are really about common good and global good. And also cooperation in this area is kind of, it's a very good thing for the whole of humanity. And then after that, I, uh, I started doing more projects in the area of environmental cooperation. And I also got involved in a youth project, uh, which was teaching youth from many countries about UN climate change negotiations, what is being done there, how can we participate, what is UN language, what can we do as youth. So I got involved in that. And then after a couple of years, I realized that I like journalism and I want to go back into journalism. And I started writing about the topic of which I knew a lot about. That was environmental and climate policy, economics. So I usually, I don't re really write a lot about science, but I do write a lot about topics which kind of stay at the crossroads between, uh, say, climate or environment and policy or climate and environment and economics or society. And uh, this is how I became an environmental journalist. And this is what I'm still doing. Hi there, 3CR listeners. This is Shane Howard, the Gowana fella. These are strange and tough times, and a lot of people are doing it really hard. But they will pass. Be kind to yourself and others. Buy local, and like 3CR, support local businesses and local artists. Don't be afraid to reach out for help if you need it, and don't hold back giving it if you can. Thanks to 3CR for being their collective voice. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. The climate front lines are not all far away. Here is Rima Rattan, 3CR journalist, talking to Bradley Mogridge about Indigenous ways of protecting our great hidden water resources. Australia is on the front line of climate change impacts, as the fires over the summer so well illustrated. Yet when we talk about land management in this country, what springs to mind first is using fire to manage the land based on techniques shared by the First Nations people of this country. What generally isn't discussed is water management. Today I'm talking to Camilla Roy water scientist Bradley Mogridge, who is also a PhD student at the University of Canberra. What are some sort of uh, broad brush sort of concepts in water management, in indigenous water management in, in the country we now call Australia? 
That's a big one. <laughs> yes. Uh, I suppose I need to probably go back a bit and think about the way Australia was and, and the way it is today. So I suppose it's, for me, the interest in water and the traditional knowledge of water, um, you know, purely comes about because we're the driest inhabited continent on earth and, you know, there's, um, we've got all different landscapes, um, cultural and, and, and bioregions, let's say, and, and climatic landscapes. Um, we've got tropics, we've got desert, we've got semi-arid, we've got um, scler- wet sclerophyll, dry sclerophyll, we've got alpine, um, and I suppose when you look at it, Australia is 70% semi-arid. So we are a dry continent per se, but when you look at the knowledge of all those landscapes, you know, and all the different mobs that connect with those landscapes, you know, that, that is individual knowledge of their country. It's not about a national knowledge. It's more about individual knowledge of their country. So they, they know their country. They know their water. They know their species. They know their fire. They know their landscapes. They know the indicators. And I suppose it's all, it's all connected, you know, and I think traditional knowledge of fire is, is going great guns at the moment because it's very, a uh, hot topic, let's say, yes. pardon the pun. Um, you know, we've just come out of the the worst drought on record, um, which was straight after the millennium drought, which was the worst drought on record. Um, so we've had two massive droughts in the last 20 years. Uh, then we had the fires, um, and then, you know, there was a bit of rain and everyone forgot about the, the dry landscapes, um, dry burnt landscapes, and then we had, um, then we, unfortunately, we had COVID. So we've had major catastrophes but I think the water debate always gets another pun washed away sorry um, because it's as soon as it rains the short-sightedness of of people making decisions and research um, dollars and things like that you know disappears because it's rain but it's rain so we don't need to do anything about water management anymore um, and I think from a traditional point of view you know that that knowledge that old ancient knowledge of thousands of generations of observation of their country and their water is not considered in the way we manage water today. So I suppose that's part of my fight um, or challenge or, or, you know, it's my research areas to try to make sure that we have a voice in the water debate. Um, you know, there's not, like the, like the fire spaces, you know, there's a few voices there in the water space, we don't have many voices. And I suppose when it comes down to water science, there's even less. Um, there's a one or two others. And when I think about my other expertise, which is hydrogeology, groundwater, my network grew from one of me to three a couple of years ago. So, you know, there's three of us that identify as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. And we, um, you know, we have qualifications in, in hydrogeology. So, you know, it's a space that we don't have a critical mass, so it's something that, you know, I'm trying to raise the profile and celebrate, you know, because that's the bit we don't do well in Australia is celebrate this old, ancient knowledge of a dry landscape that has survived rising sea levels. Um, we're going to see rising sea levels again. You know, we're seeing it now. Um, and, you know, there's stories that have been... Um, told for generations about the sea level rising when they had to move to higher ground because of the end of the last ice age. So when you think about those stories, you know, they're, they're 
seven to ten to seven to twelve thousand years old those stories and they're still surviving um you know we've survived floods droughts even um volcanic activity you know there's stories of rivers of fire um and that's the lava flows from from volcanic activity so you know there's those stories are not and that's the bit I want to do about the celebration of that knowledge is that we don't use it to to influence the way we think about the landscape and talk about the landscape or manage the landscape um, because that the way we perceive indigenous knowledge in literature and books and you know on the internet it's it's myth and legend and fables and mumbo jumbo and Mm. all these other terms that downgrade it as a knowledge set, you know, and I think that's being a Western scientist trained, but also being lucky enough to hear some of the oldest water stories on the planet. You know, we don't, we don't give it credence. And I think that's my other, my other challenge as well to, to raise the profile of traditional knowledge and maybe get to a point where it's, I'd love to see it as an equal in the way we manage our landscape and, and, provide decisions on how we manage as well why don't talk talk for days sorry no it's great we have taken indigenous knowledge about fire seriously but water seems to be well water i guess it's tricky isn't it as you say the dry breaks and people forget but but the danger of course is that there's the threshold's going to get lower and lower there's going to be less and less water Mm. and people talk about green droughts a lot and things Mm. like that do you think it's the immediacy and the impact of fire what why is it that we give credence to um first nations knowledge about fire but not about water oh i think it's there, there is, as I mentioned before, there is a bit of a critical mass of voices in that fire. You know, Victor Stefferson is a, is one of the great advocates of this. And, you know, we've got Oliver Costello in that space as well. Um, and you, you've got a PhD candidate, Wollongong, Vanessa Kavanagh. You know, she's looking at women's role in fire and Aboriginal women's role in fire in the landscape. So, you know, there's, there's things happening in this space. But when I look at water, we don't have that. You know, we don't have a national Indigenous water strategy. We don't have um, a centre of excellence for for water, Indigenous knowledge, you know, full stop. But when you break it down to water, you know, we don't have an advisory body. You know, back in 2014, I was part of the First Peoples Water Engagement Council that gave advice to the National Water Commission, you know. So that was the last time we actually had a voice um, as a collective body to to give advice on on, on water, Um, you know, whether that was planning or policy, but also research space, you know, we don't even in let's say science you know in the the national strategy national science strategy of 2017 i'm sort of paraphrasing here but what it really recommends is that indigenous people do science just like women that's it that's what we've got to that's what we've got to hang our hat on in the science space you know so those sort of things you know the academies need to change as well you know the the learned academies that need to need to shift their their, their their thinking and cultural attitudes, but also allow for, you know, one day I'd love to see our elders as fellows of the Academy of Science, you know, because of that knowledge they have of their country. You know, that knowledge that's been passed on, it's been tested. They had methods, they had apparatus, they had um, ideas, they had values, and they had results, you know, and that they could replicate those results. And, you know, that, that to me is a science in itself. So, but I'll, yeah, well, really, we, we survived, um, and, and, and adapted. And I think that's, that's our next big challenge as well is adapting and, and mitigating to, to, 
for drier, longer periods, hotter periods, hotter fires, rising sea levels. So, you know, that we're going to have to adapt as well. So it's, you know, I think Indigenous knowledge can be a part of the way we manage it. We've just got to make it happen. So I guess that in terms of um, nations managing the local areas that you mentioned earlier, I'd imagine that there wasn't a sort of you look after the land, this guy will look after the water that, you know, wouldn't have been separated. Can you talk a little to a sort of an integrated understanding or I guess an ecological understanding to landscape, which kind of seems yeah. weird to say in itself, but go on. Yeah, look, I suppose the the roles of of people within an within a individual nation would be, would be different, you know, there'd be the... The law holders, the knowledge holders, the elders that, that would hold knowledge for that and have the stories and the songs and the dances linked to the knowledge of their country, you know. And a lot of the times, you know, that's why we, you know, we are the original storytellers, but we are the storytellers of, of science before science was even a thing. So I think the, the, the aspect of knowing your country, you know, there's men's and women's business, you know, so I'm, um, you know, having, a background in hydrogeology, I need to be careful as well because women's sites are closely linked to groundwater in my country. So I need to be very careful where I go and what I say about some of these places. So, you know, the, the gender specific roles, but also the places within your country. So the knowledge of when the rivers start flowing less or stop flowing, you got to know where the deep water holes are. So where you can, you can either get water or food or where the shallow aquifers are, where you can actually dig and and access these, you know, in, in some of the sand hills um, that are blown in on, on some people's country, you know. So it's there are a lot of the knowledge is in the songs and the law. And so there are keepers of that law, but we need to understand that, you know, that they will have knowledge of their own space, not of anyone else's space. And, you know, when things start changing, like, you know, Let's say we, we put a dam at the top of a river. The knowledge of your country suggests that, you know, the, the, there's a plant that's flowering. That means maybe a fish species is, is, is spawning or it's on the run or on the move or there's been a fresh flow come down the river. And as that water recedes, the, the native fish, like in, say, in the southeast corner on my country, they start to move. So, you know, you, that's the time to go to the river to catch a feed. Um, and so those indicators tell you that, but you might be in a regulated system where there's a dam in a modern sense, where mm. there's a dam at the top of your catchment, and but it hasn't released that water based on those indicators. Um, there could be rain in in the in the catchment, but that water's not coming down because it's been held back by the dam, or no one's ordered that water. So I suppose it's it's how can we make sure that those traditional indicators are matched with river flows as well. And that's a space that we don't do it really well either in this in, in the Australian landscape. So when you think about environmental flows, you know, they are to mimic pre-development natural flows to a point. Well, I don't think we can mimic that without traditional knowledge. You know, mm. the, the science can only go so far um, based on, you know, the species needs, and but it's, it's very much responses to fish spawning or, or vegetation needs and, and things like that, or bird breeding um, events. Uh, but there are indicators that don't get considered as well. So, you know, that, that knowledge that Aboriginal people hold, I think, 
is just not considered in the way we manage the water in the landscape. Of course, I mean, water, you would think, I mean, as a dry continent and stuff, is a very um, serious issue. But most most cities now, most capital cities have desalination plants. I mean, mm. <laughs> you can almost foresee a future where the inside of Australia is dry and abandoned. Yeah. Well, oh, look, let's... Let's hope it doesn't get to that point. But Australia responds to a crisis, and I think responding to the fire crisis because it was so widespread and across many different landscapes and it had huge impacts and loss of life and property, that's the thing that that has been responded to. You know, there was a number of committees established, um, but during the drought, you know, they have an inquiry and inquiry. and But unfortunately, the way the systems work is that the lobbyists get what they want mm. and you know when you think about river management you know there's there's some unregulated rivers in new south wales that have low flows they're the flows that's supposed you know supposed to keep the river alive in dry times but there was rules brought in by a minister of the crown that said no you can pump those low flows and so that means the rivers that's why we saw those massive fish kills because mm. those rivers were under such stress already but there's still people taking water, yeah. um, and they weren't breaking the rules. They were, they were just they were just complying with the rules they lobbied for. What is the state of Australia's groundwater? Oh, why I got interested in groundwater because I'm in Kamilaroi country, you know, we're down towards the bottom of the Great Artesian Basin, so we've got a lot of springs in our country. A lot of our old people talked about the springs, and you know that some started drying up because back in the day, you know, the 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 Wild West, you know, they dig a hole and water would just come out mm. and it'd keep coming out, you know. And I suppose they, they saw that as, you know, it was untapped and it would flow forever. But when you think about that old water, you know, the knowledge the our um, our ancestors have of that water, you know, it was respected because yeah, they knew it was old water, you know, it was ancient water. And the stories that connected, especially to say, you know, like a, a rainbow serpent style um, creation hero that, that moved between the surface and the, and, and the underground was through these natural springs. And so you didn't mess with these natural springs. You know, they were highly protected and they were strong in the law and they were strong in the, in the dances. And, and if you messed up and did something to those, those springs, you know, if a spring dried up, you know, it's either the snake died or the snake moved on or someone did something wrong and they were going to be in trouble. So the knowledge of groundwater systems has been there because there's, there is a fair bit of uncertainty on, on, on groundwater, um, you know, in the models and things like that. But, you know, we have a fairly good picture of what's there. And, you know, I think the threats that are coming to groundwater systems, I think the biggest threat, maybe, well, let's say, is coal seam gas. You know, we don't, there's a lot of unknowns about the impacts that's going to have. But, you know, when you think about that sort of industry, you know, they're, they're going to be puncturing the earth 10,000 times to get the gas out. And that can't be good. That can't be good. So the knowledge and science need to work together. And also the value of those those natural uh, the groundwater systems and their connect, connectivity to surface water as well. I think um, you know, that, that, that is an untapped area. Knowing your country and knowing your waters and knowing the indicators all link to, to, to your survival um, and knowing the species that need that water at certain times but also, you know, the, the harvesting of water, you know, groundwater systems, tunnels and, and using, say, a line of ants going into a cave or birds in a dry landscape will potentially suggest where water is or a stand of, 
of say gum trees in the middle of nowhere is is they're accessing groundwater and they're able to to thrive. So it's it's knowledge of those places, but I just love to see another you know the next generation or my generation think about water in the landscape and how we can actually influence the way we manage water because we've got so much to offer and so much to celebrate and I think that's that's the, the hope and the exciting bit is that you know, the realisation that we can celebrate this landscape and, and this knowledge system, this old knowledge system of our mob that can, can make this place a better place and the way we manage water and the landscape can only be better for our, our next generations, you know. So it's, it's leaving a legacy for the next and honouring the past. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Mission show at Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. It's called Climate Frontlines, Episode 2. And now Kurt Johnson will take us to the Pacific Islands. But first a song of farewell from Fiji and Tonga, Isa Lei, sung by the Suva Methodist Church Choir. Griffith University's Doctor of Political Science and member of the Pacific Hub at the Griffith Asia Institute, Dr. Wesley Morgan. Dr. Morgan studies Pacific Islands and the international politics of climate change and oceans, among other things. We discussed with him the complex relationship between Australia and other Pacific Island nations over climate change and how it has not just become a humanitarian and environmental issue, but is also an issue of national security. So Australia is, uh, to be honest, the average Australians has a flawed understanding of the Pacific. How, how is that ignorance perceived throughout the region? Yes, I think it would be fair to say that most Australians have a, a limited understanding of the Pacific region. I mean, we're, we're blessed to have in the near region um, 14 independent Pacific Island countries and I think most Australians would struggle to find them or name them on a map. I think most people have an image of the Pacific as as some sort of tropical ideal, you know, a, a place we might go for holidays. A lot of people might have been to Fiji or to Vanuatu. Australians have a lot to learn about their Pacific Island neighbours. And, and that's a real shame, I think, because uh, the Pacific is a, a wonderfully diverse 
part of the world, you know, tens of thousands of islands that are, are inhabited and many hundreds of languages, diverse and rich cultures, by contrast, are well aware of Australia. So most Pacific Islanders know people who live in Australia or travel to Australia for work or for study. So if you like, Pacific Islanders are a lot more familiar with Australians than Australians are of Pacific Islanders. So how has climate change already started costing lives in the region? Well, climate change impacts in lots of different ways. I mean, like Australia, Pacific Island countries face um, changes in rainfall patterns. So we're seeing droughts. Uh, flooding, you know, in terms of impact on lives, uh, perhaps the most dramatic is the increase in more intense cyclones. The Pacific's been smashed in the last five years. So uh, Vanuatu's been hit twice by Category 5 storms, Cyclone Pam, Cyclone Harold, uh, Fiji, Cyclone Winston, uh, Tonga. You know, the, the and the difference between... A, a category two or three storm and a category five storm is, you know, it's, it's exponentially more damaging at a, at category five. So, you know, many tens of thousands of buildings have been damaged or destroyed. People lose their homes. Super important infrastructure like hospitals and schools are destroyed. The whole economy has taken an awful long time to recover. Thankfully, that you know, deaths. There have been deaths with these storms, but not as many as 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 you might expect, because I think of this cultural awareness of cyclones in the Pacific. Yeah, and they've uh, Pacific Island countries have already begun to consider adaptation. I know that uh, Fiji has relocated some villages. Uh, Kiribati, where we've had a show on on here from, has brought an island in Fiji. And um, so are there any other ways that countries in the Pacific are adapting to climate change? Well, yeah, I mean, because climate change has such varied impacts, uh, it's really a whole of government thing to to uh, plan for adaptation. You know, it's, 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 it's a lot of things you might not even think about, but uh, planning for changes in what food crops you plant and when, Changes in, you know, more frequent uh, mosquito-borne diseases, things like malaria are spreading into new areas in the Pacific, dengue fever. You know, adaptation means building stuff that is more resilient to these impacts, to uh, sea level rise, to storms, and that's expensive. Schools that are very well-built that can withstand strong storms and can end up being sheltered during times of disaster. That's, you know, a key way that we're looking at adaptation. An interesting thing is that uh, it's really a wonder that Australia isn't having more national conversations about adapting to climate change. You know, of course, we see Australia is one of the world's most uh, vulnerable to the impacts of climate change as well. See, I've been lucky enough to spend most of my adult life in the Pacific I think that Pacific governments are a lot more climate literate. You know, they, they just have a better understanding of how these impacts will shape government decision-making across the board. You know, you almost need a reverse aid program. You almost need some Pacific uh, officials to talk to their Australian counterparts about how they ought to be planning for their investments 
into the future in Australia. We're going to see uh, droughts and fires and, and cyclones in new places that Australia needs to plan for as well. I think that's a fantastic idea. I think they're probably already trying to have that conversation with us, but I, I just don't think we're listening very well. Of course, we have to sort of try and tread this line, this paradox where our domestic policy, where we've got no real policy on climate change, at least at a federal level, um, is that undermining our credibility in the region? Yes, of course it is. You can't overstate how important climate change is uh, as a foreign policy issue for Pacific Island countries. For 30 plus years, Pacific Island governments have been saying in uh, statements agreed to by all island leaders that climate change presents an existential threat, a threat to their territorial integrity, their sovereignty, to their lives, to their livelihoods. And this has been a key driver in their diplomacy and their international relations. Not just when Pacific Island governments talk to Australia, but when they talk to governments anywhere, they want to see action on climate change. It's not commonly known in Australia anyway, but Pacific Islanders, island governments, have really driven global efforts to tackle climate change. Pacific Island countries were super important for the Kyoto Protocol and then again for the Paris Agreement. When they look to Australia and they see that Australia is not not meeting its obligations under the Paris Agreement and is the world's largest coal exporter and doesn't have any national climate policy, I think a lot of Pacific leaders can't don't understand why. Australia, you know, they see Australia as a part of the Pacific region, sometimes referred to as a big brother, so the, the largest state in the in the Pacific, but one that is not with the rest of the family, as it were, on tackling climate change. Yeah, and that's a, that's a fabulous point. I can't remember where I read it. I was reading about how Australia is part of the family, but it's not emotionally part of the family. Um, the Pacific family just uses that as a PR operation when it suits, when it suits us. And that speaks to Tuvalu in October last year, which was a watershed moment in the relationship between Australia and the Pacific Island nations. Um, how has our relationship fared in the aftermath of that? Scott Morrison had a difficult time when he was there. Tuvalu is a tiny atoll state. In some measures, it's a very large ocean state, you know, if you think about the uh, sovereign rights that people have over the ocean. But I think Scott Morrison misread what was going to happen in Tuvalu, announcing that he would rearrange, sorry, reallocate $500 million of the Australian aid program to tackling climate change. Not new money, just reallocating existing money. And he was surprised that uh, this was not well received by Pacific leaders, like, I think it really speaks to Australia's lack of emotional engagement with its island governments that he was surprised. There is even a catch cry that if you save Tuvalu, you save the world. And and there is some truth to that in the sense that when an atoll state like Tuvalu goes under, heaven forbid, with sea level rise, with damage to coastal ecosystems and reefs, it won't be just Tuvalu, it'll be all of us. But to come back to your point about were there bitter feelings? Yes, there was. You know, last year, 
every year the Pacific leaders get together with and the Australian and New Zealand Prime Minister and they go off to a retreat. You know, there aren't cameras present and there aren't officials present and they have very frank conversations about their relationship. And this speaks to the special relationship that Australia does have with the Pacific. But apparently at that meeting, the, uh, the, 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 the Tongan uh, Prime Minister uh, broke down in tears you know, they, they, they tried to have a human discussion with Scott Morrison. They tried to engage him and explain just how important they felt it was that Australia commits to doing more on climate change. Apparently, Scott Morrison's response was just to again and again point to this $500 million of reallocated aid. And uh, people were angry about that. There's no doubt about that. After that meeting, for example, Pacific leaders went off to the uh, global climate talks that last year were in Madrid, in Spain. And um, at that meeting, Pacific Island leaders made a real point of talking about Australia's plans to use Kyoto credits, these dodgy credits that Australia is claiming in order to avoid actually reducing emissions. And uh, Pacific Prime Minister's on the global stage, took that opportunity to say that the Fiji Prime Minister said, we're, we're all in the same canoe, it is leaking water. And what did he say? You can't fix a leaky boat with Kyoto credits, <laughs> is what Frank Barney <laughs> Moran said. And he, he said, you know, that there are, there are zero excuses. So bitter, I think, yeah. is the, uh, the feeling that that meeting left. And fair enough. So you wrote a really interesting piece uh, for The Interpreter, which is look, looking at climate change in the Pacific as actually an issue of national security. How is that different from how it's typically viewed? Key to this is Pacific Island countries have argued for decades that uh, climate change is a national security threat. You know, they, there's a lot to this, right? Uh, some people, they argue, okay, climate change is going to exacerbate traditional threats like warfare or or might cause mass migrations of people. Uh, but Pacific leaders have actually said, well, look, climate change itself is a threat to our territorial integrity, is a threat to uh, people's lives. And uh, they've taken this to the United Nations Security Council to try and get traction on this idea that climate change is in itself a security threat that countries need to work together to tackle. This is why in just a couple of years ago, Australia is suddenly much more interested in the Pacific over the last three years or so. There was a big Pacific step up and much of this is driven by uh, changing geopolitics and concern about a more powerful China in particular. So Australia suddenly has these heightened uh, security concerns a couple of weeks ago, Australia announced a, a, a defence update which, in which the, the top-line message was, I think, $270 billion would be spent on, on acquiring missiles. Australia is deeply concerned about traditional security threats and a changing geostrategic environment. But in the meantime, Australia has been, last year, the hottest and driest year on record, and Australia had the worst bushfires it has ever had, and they killed, between the fires themselves and the smoke from the fires, they have killed more Australians than the COVID-19 pandemic has so far. But there seems to be something of a myopia, something of a, an unwillingness to treat climate change with the same seriousness 
uh, that you might treat uh, more traditional security threats like conflict across the border. I think the Pacific Island countries are just slightly ahead of the curve. I think Australia will start to understand climate change as a real and present threat to national security, and in future we'll see it discussed in that way. But at the moment, it still tends to be off to the side. That is a side issue that is only of concern to some and not at the heart of our national security concerns. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. It was wonderful to work with guest broadcasters tonight, Rima Rattan and James Whitmore. And thanks to our regular team, Kurt Johnson and Andy Britt. Tonight, our guests were, and many thanks to them, Russian journalist Angelina Davidova in St. Petersburg, Indigenous water scientist Bradley Mogridge in Canberra, and Pacific Hub academic Dr. Wesley Morgan at Griffith University. Now, Climate Action This Week for all listeners in Melbourne. On the 24th of June, 41 environmental groups stopped the logging of 15 forest stands for a full day. They are also taking legal action against the Victorian forests, Vic Forests. The next info session about this is on Zoom on Wednesday, 22nd of July at 6pm. You can get the Zoom details by emailing this address. King Lake Friends of the Forests at gmail.com. And I'll put that on the podcast notes. You can look up BZE Podcasts and find the notes. Or you can contact us at radio team at bze.org.au. The second action you can take is on Saturday, 25th of July at 2 pm. There will be a, an Extinction Rebellion Victorian People's Assembly to mobilise for climate action. Now, we're all in COVID lockdown, so it's especially important to connect with each other, and this way we can do it on Zoom. And you need to go to the Extinction Rebellion Facebook page to find the Zoom address, or again, you can contact me at radioteam at bze.org.au. Thank you, everybody. I'd like to finish with a little story. As we seem to be revising our history one statue at a time, I thought about the Burke and Wills statue. They're in storage somewhere. Burke, the visionary, and Wills, his thoughtful assistant. When the pandemic is over and the metro is built, they want to go back opposite the Melbourne Town Hall. But slowly, Wills is standing up. And he says to Burke, Robert... Sit down a minute. We can't go back to Collins Street looking like we discovered anything. If we'd tried to get along with the Aboriginal people, you know, we'd have had plenty to eat and plenty of water. Those people would have told our friends at Cooper's Creek that we were only hours away. They'd have sent smoke, you know. They know where people are in the landscape. We'd have known there was no inland sea, and most of all, we'd have found out how to prepare that Nardu so it wouldn't kill us. Robert, you said it grew on trees. You had no respect for the local tribes, and you ordered us to shoot over their heads to frighten them off when they brought us fish to sustain us. Listen, 
When we go back, I want our plaque to read, How could they have starved to death, surrounded by food? We're confronted by climate change listeners, and tonight we've heard from the frontier, front lines. And as I learned recently, when our worldview is no longer compatible with our knowledge of the world, isn't it wiser to alter our worldview rather than to alter the facts? This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Good night and good luck.